If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. plots against Elizabeth. And in the 1580s, it was almost a continuum of plots. There were a hell of a lot. They weren't all made up. Most of them were real. Most of them were genuine. And all it took was one flash of the blade, one bullet, and she would have been wiped out. And with her, Protestant England would have been wiped out. That was Jessie Childs discussing plots against Elizabeth I in a lecture from our 2014 History Weekend at Malmesbury. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good newsagents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our fourth podcast of June 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. This week we're broadcasting a lecture from our 2014 History Weekend at Malmesbury. The speaker was Jessie Childs, an author and historian who specialises in the Tudor period. Her most recent book is God's Traitors, Terror and Faith in Elizabethan England. And that was also the subject of her talk. It's a real joy to be here as well. Thank you so much for having me. I think this is one of the loveliest venues I've ever spoken in. And I'm going to be talking to you on the somewhat controversial subject, Bloody Bess, was she, wasn't she? Um, But before we go there... I actually want to take you about two and a half centuries forward to 1828, the reign of George IV. Now, this was the great age of the refurb. Everyone's doing up their houses. They're copying the king. And the owners of Rushton Hall in Northamptonshire were no different. It's a lovely 15th century manor. Um, You can go there now. It's a hotel. I recommend the food. It's very, very good. Uh, But anyway, the owner there, he wanted to vamp it up in the French style, so in went the builders. And one day, one builder was removing a lintel over an ancient doorway in the Great Hall, and something came down with the rubble. It was a book, beautifully bound, clearly quite old, So he hacked away at the wall a little bit more, and he came across something else. He came across a recess. It was about 15 inches deep, five foot long, and there was something inside it. Something wrapped up in a large sheet. So you can imagine this builder getting quite excited at this stage. He's thinking, hidden treasure, precious heirlooms, what am I going to do with all my money? Uh, So picture his dismay when he unwrapped this bundle. And all he found were books, more books, papers and books. But actually, they were precious heirlooms. 
they were hidden treasures, to the historian at least, because they tell a remarkable story. They belong to this man, Sir Thomas Tresham. He lived at Rushton Hall in the reign of Elizabeth I, and he was Catholic. And Elizabeth, as you know, was Protestant, and therefore, on paper at least, so was the rest of her realm. And this was a big problem for Tresham and for thousands of other Catholics like him. It was a big problem. It got worse as the reign went on. It was tragic. It was messy. It was seemingly insurmountable. And those papers of his, the Tresham papers, we call them, they're now in the British Library. You can go and see them. They tell the story of that problem, how men and women tried to live with it, how they tried to cope with it, and how the state tried to deal with it too. And it's stories like that, some hidden histories, literally immured, secreted away for centuries, that give us, I hope, I think, another view to Elizabeth's reign. You know, a little bit of the underbelly, if you like. When I was a child, I saw a priest hole. And I wondered, why would grown-ups play hide-and-seek? And then I forgot about it. It sort of fell off my radar. At school, it was very much Gloriana and all that. You know, when we think of Elizabeth I, we think of the iconic portraits and speeches. We think of this. Or if we're really hamming it up, we might think of this. And for some, she will always be queenie. But... What we don't do so much is think of the black teeth and the wigs and the smallpox scars. They've been airbrushed. And, you know, that's fine. That doesn't bother me. That's cosmetic. But what does worry me a little bit, as a historian, not a Catholic, I'm not Catholic, is the way her religious record has been similarly airbrushed. You know, she's hailed as this great beacon of tolerance, the foundation of our tradition of tolerance. And that's not quite right. I'll give you one example. I don't know if anyone um, caught it. In 2002, there was a series called Great Britons, and it was on BBC Two. I should whisper it quietly, BBC. Um, and it was, the whole idea was to find out who was the greatest Briton of all time, and the winner was Churchill, Nat. He always wins. Um, Henry VIII came 40th, which I thought was a little harsh on Henry VIII, considering everything that happened in his reign. He was beaten by David Beckham, David Bowie, Michael Crawford, and uh, Sir Steve Redgrave was another one that surprised me. But anyway, Elizabeth did quite well. She came seventh, and she was championed very eloquently by Michael Portillo. And it was great, but there was just this one problem I had. He kept using this word, tolerance, toleration, tolerance. And he said, you know, she fought against religious fanaticism, and she founded our tradition of tolerance. And to prove the point up flashed all these images of men and women in sort of various stages of execution, uh, their limbs being cut off um, and boiled, and it's not pleasant. And the whole point of it was, this is what the beastly Catholic continentals did. Not in England, not Protestants. Um, But unfortunately for the picture researcher, the images actually showed Carthusian monks, monks of the London Charterhouse, being hanged, drawn, and quartered in the reign of Henry VIII. You know, there's no monopoly on religious terror, on cruelty. Um, And Elizabeth was worse than her father. Torture was used more in her reign than in any other. The mass was banned. So were really 
simple devotional items like rosaries if they came from Rome and crucifixes and Agnes Dei, things like this. There was a list and the port officials were on the lookout for these kind of things. So in Agnes Dei here, small wax disc bearing an imprint of the Lamb of God. It's a very personal devotional item. It was often worn round the neck. Um, It was banned. And actually, as late as 1959, an electrician in a house called Life for Grange in Berkshire found one up in the attic, nailed to a joist under the floorboards in a little box. People had to hide them. They couldn't wear them openly. Catholics had to go to Protestant church services every week. And from 1581, the fine that had been quite small before was raised to 20 pounds a month. That is a crippling sum in that time, at least five grand, probably more we're talking about. And the ones who refused to go to Protestant church services, the recusants, we call them. It comes from the Latin, recusare, to refuse. These refusers were quite often, not always, but quite often treated as sort of non-subject, bad Elizabethans. And in 1593, a law was passed stating that recusants couldn't travel beyond five miles of their home without a license. That sounds quite like a control order to me. Um, And worst of all, the priests were outlawed. And if you can't have priests, you can't have the sacraments. If you can't have the sacraments, you can't have the Catholic faith. That was the theory. But what actually happened was that Catholic families would send their boys abroad. They would smuggle them out in boats and they would train on the continent to be Catholic priests. And then they would be smuggled back in disguised as merchants and soldiers and school teachers. And here are some of them receiving the blessing of Pope Gregory XIII. Note how young some of them are. I mean, they really were just out of their teens, some of them. The Elizabethan government responded in 1585 with an act that stated that any priest who had been ordained abroad since the beginning of Elizabeth's reign and who even set foot on English soil would automatically be deemed a traitor and would be hanged, drawn and quartered. And his hosts, you know, just the average Catholic who put them up in their house, who wanted to hear the mass, they would also be hung for a capital felony. So that is why there are priest holes up and down the country. It was hide and seek, but it was no game. Almost 200 Catholic men and women were executed in Elizabeth's reign for essentially religious crimes, usually for being or for harboring a priest. So, so much for Elizabethan tolerance. And, and this beam here, I just want to point out because it's so cool. It's uh, from Harmington Hall in Worcestershire. And it was only discovered in 1894 by a boy exploring a derelict wing of the house. And it's, it's, it's got that swinging beam hide. And, and it's, it, it's, it, there are tons of priests in that house. Again, you can go and see it. It's, it. it's kind of incredible. But to be fair to Elizabeth's government, it wasn't just the government putting the pressure on the Catholics. You know, Mary, Queen of Scots, coming to England when she did in 1568, the very year that William Allen set up the main seminary in Flanders, it really didn't help matters. And she had some very, very powerful support. She had Philip II of Spain, the superpower at the time. And she had the Guises, her relatives, the Guises, very hardline, very militant, They were involved in things like this. 
This is the massacre of St. Bartholomew. It happened in France in 1572. And it was essentially the sanctified slaughter of thousands of French Protestants, the Huguenots. And the River Seine was said to run red with blood. And one of the most chilling things I read when I was doing my research for this book was a report from the Spanish ambassador in Paris at the time. And he's writing to Philip II of Spain. And he says, as I write, they are killing them all. They are stripping them naked. They are dragging them through the streets. They are sparing not even a babe. And as you read it, you are waiting for the official condemnation. But it doesn't come. Instead, he continues, blessed be God who has converted the French princes to his cause. May he inspire their hearts continue as they have begun. He didn't want it to end. He wanted it to carry on. This is God's work, he thought. And Philip II, when he heard about the massacre, he apparently laughed. It was great news. So, oh, and one other thing. Sir Francis Walsingham, Elizabeth's principal secretary, her spymaster, he was there at the time. He was on secondment at the English embassy in Paris at the time, and he never forgot those events. You know, it may provide some kind of explanation to his actions later, his mindset. So there's this very visceral, very real fear of Catholicism creeping into England at the time, even though it's the ancient faith, even though Protestantism is really the new one. Protestantism was an import from places like Strasbourg and Zurich and Wittenberg and Geneva, Catholicism was the ancient faith. Protestantism, even the word, it was coined in 1529, and it was after the protestation at Spire in Germany. It was the German imperial cities protesting against the imperial ban on Martin Luther. It's a very foreign word. Only really in the 1580s or so were English men and women comfortable using the word Protestant as a term of self-reference. But having said that, Catholicism, because of things like this was being seen as the nasty religion. And of course, before Elizabeth, there had been her half-sister, Mary. Bloody Mary, so-called. In her short reign, 280 Protestants were burnt at the stake for being Protestant, for not being Catholic. And there are some really grisly descriptions of what went on. A chap called John Fox wrote it all up in his book, The Acts and Monuments. And he described human juices dripping from bodies as they roasted at the stake. He described lips moving in prayer until they literally melted away in the flames. And it's very powerful and it's very evocative. And one of the canniest things Elizabeth's ministers did in the next reign was to make sure there was a copy of this book in every cathedral church and as many parish churches as possible. So people would go to church and they would come to the lectern and there would be the Bible here and there would also be a copy of John Fox's Acts and Monuments. And it was full of pictures, it was full of woodcuts and they were evocative. They were things like this. This was a lady from Guernsey who was pregnant when she was burnt at the stake and she gave birth as she was burning and and the baby, I think they didn't quite know what to do with it. In the end, they decided it would go back in the flames because it's a heretic's baby. Um, Allegedly, you know, everything is propaganda in this age. So you have to be a bit careful about, you know, how grisly either side is. But, But that is what was alleged to have happened. So not nice. And you can understand the fear of Catholicism. Elizabeth I was not like Mary. 
she was essentially, I do believe, moderate in her opinion. She didn't want to force consciences, but she did expect obedience. After all, she had conformed during Mary's reign. She had gone to Mass, whereas Mary, in the reign before, in Edward VI's reign, she'd refused to go to Protestant services. And by the way, this is one of the problems of this period, this constant yo-yoing of official religion. You know, the family I write about, the Vauxes of Harrowden Hall, the patriarch, Lord Vaux, he was born in 1535, the reign of Henry VIII. So he was brought up to revere the Mass. And Henry VIII, right to the end of Henry VIII's reign, even though he broke with Rome, even though he dissolved the monasteries, the Mass was still in place. It was a capital offence to deny the real presence of Christ in the sacrament of the altar. And people were being burned at the stake right to the end of Henry VIII's reign. But then you have Edward VI's reign, radical Protestant. He's the young Josiah. He's there to destroy idolatry and strip the altars. And it's exactly what he did. All the walls were whitewashed, the images, the statues, they were all gone. But that only lasted six years. And then you have Mary's reign, five years of Catholicism reintroduced, five years of the burnings. Then Elizabeth comes in and she restores Protestantism, but it's not really radical Protestantism. So at the beginning of her reign, what's going on? You can see why they might be confused. And Lord Vaux, so he'd grown up revering the mass. Then it was abolished. Then it was restored. Then it was abolished again. Here he is, by the way. Um, he prayed. He prayed fervently for one more swing of the pendulum. And people like Lord Burley, Elizabeth's Lord Treasurer, prayed just as hard for that not to happen and worked just as hard for that not to happen. Now, we know that that's it. We know that Elizabeth will reign for 45-odd years and England will be a firmly Protestant country at the end of it. But they didn't. And I think if we're going to understand this subject at all, we have to remember that. We have to suspend hindsight. We have to forget what we read in 1066 and all that. Though I'll remind you, because it's quite funny, they said, broody Mary's reign was a bad thing, since England is bound to be C of E, so all the executions were wasted. Um, <laughs> That, in a nutshell, is the Protestant Whig view of English history, and it's, it's proved remarkably durable. But things were a lot more complicated, a lot more unsteady in 1570, when Pope Pius V excommunicated Elizabeth I. He not only cut her off from the Catholic Church and declared her a heretic, but he declared her illegitimate. He said she had no right to rule, and he enjoined all the Catholics of England to disobey her. Upon pain of anathema, he said she should not be obeyed. So what do they do? They're in this bind, this terrible bind. You know, do you obey the Pope and save your soul, but submit your body to temporal punishment? Or do you obey the Queen and condemn your soul to the flames of hell forever? Not easy. Actually, what most of them did was they crossed their fingers. You know, they, 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 they would go to church and they would cross their fingers and they would sort of register little mini protests that they thought, hoped would sit well with God. So they might keep their hat on during the service or they might chatter during the sermon. Um, or, or my favourite was Sir Richard Sherman of York, who 
for two decades of attendance. Every time he went into church, he put a little bit of cotton in each ear. Uh, and I guess they kind of hoped that God would, would think that was all right. Um, and these guys were known pejoratively as church papists. And by the way, this is another problem for this period. We don't know how many there were because you don't advertise your faith when it's being repressed. Um, but John Bossy, an eminent Catholic historian, he estimated that in 1603, the end of Elizabeth's reign, there were probably around 40,000 of these church papists in England. Now, that's quite a conservative estimate. And of that number, only about 8,500, a small fraction, were recusants, the refusers. William Shakespeare's father, John, was one, and another was Lord Vaux, our patriarch. Now, he was the least likely rebel you could ever come across. He was a peer of the realm. He sat on all the county commissions. He was liked by his neighbours. He loved his children. He loved hunting. He loved sports. He loved players. Um, Simon Callow, when he re- reviewed my book, he, uh, he labelled him the Earl of Emsworth in a rough, which I quite like the sort of something Woodhousian about him. But... Five years after this portrait was painted, in 1580, Lord Vaux had to make a decision, and it was a huge decision. He let into his gates, into his house, his children's former schoolmaster, and that man was Edmund Campion. And Campion had been abroad. He'd come back to England disguised as a jewel merchant. Why? because he was a Catholic priest. And he wasn't just any Catholic priest. There's a picture of him, actually. He was a Jesuit. Now, when we think of the Jesuits now, we think of Pope Francis. We think of good exam results. You know, it's all positive, good stuff. But in the 16th century, it was very different. They were very militant, very hardline, and very foreign-seeming. Their founder, Ignatius Loyola, was a Spanish soldier originally. And so you know, they put the fear of God, honestly, into the Elizabethan authorities. And Campion hardly dampened it down. When he came to England, he said to all the church papists, uh, 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 you can't do this anymore. This doesn't sit well with God. This is a sin. So he was saying, you have to disobey the queen. And he challenged the Elizabethan state to a public disputation. And he said quite chilling things. He said, the expense is reckoned. The enterprise is begun. It is of God. It cannot be withstood. So the faith was planted. So it must be restored. He terrified the Elizabethan authorities. They tracked him down. They found him. They tortured him. He was asked at one stage how his hands and feet felt after a session on the rack. And he said, not ill, because not at all. And he was hand-drawn and quartered on the 1st of December, 1581. And when he'd been on the rack, he'd given up the names of his hosts. And Lord Vaux was one of them. So Vaux was arrested and he was interrogated. And he actually went through a trial at the Guildhall. He was imprisoned in the fleet in London And about two years later, he was under house arrest for most of the rest of his life in Hackney. And he was fined £20 a month regularly for not going to church. In 1587, two-thirds of his estate was confiscated 
by the state because he hadn't paid his fines. And his brother-in-law, Sir Thomas Tresham, described seeing him in 1593, just when Lord Vaux had been forced to pawn his parliamentary robes, which is you know, a tough thing for a proud peer to do, um, he, you know, to pay his fines. Um, he was so indebted. And Tresham described him with tears streaming down his cheeks. And it, it broke him. It broke him. And I'm not sure we, we, we can, you know, as historians, we make enough of this because it's all quite abstract. You know, we can, we can count the number of people who were executed and we can tot up how much someone spent in fines in their lifetime. But it's much harder to gauge the psychological effect of these recusancy fines. And you know, generally have just been treated like a non-subject, a bad member of the Commonwealth. And it's certainly, as far as the Vaults is concerned, it, it, it definitely affected the second generation. I think um, it kind of radicalized them. Certainly his son, Henry Vaux, he became a key operative in the underground movement to uh, save Catholicism in England. He, was, he, he had all the intelligence about which priests were coming off which boats when, and he knew what aliases they would use, what disguises they would have, which safe house they would have to move on to, and he ran the funds for all of that. Um, and he was, in the end, arrested during a raid, and he died in the Marshalsea prison of a wasting disease. And you can see it also in his sisters, Lord Vaux's daughters, Eleanor Brooksby and Anne Vaux, or the Widow and the Virgin, which were their code names. They were the names that the, the head of the Jesuits, Henry Garnet, used for them. And they kept him safe for almost 20 years. They traveled with him, and they funded him. They bailed out other priests who were in prison. And they often traveled with a guy called Nicholas Owen, who was this master priest hall maker. He was, he was a joiner from Oxford. And he was tiny. Um, his nickname was Little John. Uh, the Spanish called him Juan El Chico, which is somehow better. Um, and he made these brilliant, brilliant priest holes, not just sort of holes in walls, but sometimes double priest holes. And there was one at Hinlip in Worcestershire where... Um, um, a reed, there was a reed placed all the way through the masonry, right to the room next door. And that meant that priests could get hot drinks and cordles and they could stay alive. Henry Garnet, who the sisters kept alive and safe, he survived in one of those hides for seven days and seven nights until at the end they got him because they just pulled the house apart. This was after the gunpowder plot. I'm forward winding a bit. And they ripped up the floorboards and they knocked through the walls and they, they got him in the end. But that priest hole kept him alive for seven days and seven nights. Um, and Anne particularly, I should say, actually, she is brilliant. She was very formidable. So after Garnet was caught, um, after the gunpowder plot, she followed him to London and she was tracked down. She was arrested and she was placed in solitary confinement. And you can imagine the guards thinking that she would be cowering at this stage. She's about to be interrogated about the gunpowder plot. I mean, the worst terrorist attack or you know, attempted attack. You know, inconceivable. And not a bit of it. She was incredibly bold. And she said things like this. She went, well, of course I knew about the gunpowder plot. I'm a woman and women know about everything, don't you know? And she said, well, of course Henry Garnet was the ringleader. He wouldn't have missed it for the world. You keep telling me he's the greatest traitor in the world. 
And then she said, thank you very much for giving me board and lodging in London because no one else has given me a shit at the moment. So in the end, they didn't know what to do with her and they threw their arms up in the air and they said, well, we just do not know what to do with that woman. I quote that woman. So off she trotted and for the rest of her life, up until about 1637 or so, she carried on harboring priests. So they're interesting, these women. And there is this sort of feminist element to the mission that is quite interesting because in the 16th century, women are inferior. They're perceived to be inferior to men. They're just not as important. They don't have the same status in the law. And that can't be much fun. You know, if a woman married, all her property went to her husband. But ironically, it's because of that that they were so important to the mission. Because if she didn't own any property, then she couldn't really be fined, certainly not in the same way that her husband could. So what you often find happening is the men would go to church and obey the law and avoid the fine. And the women would stay at home and they would look after the children and sometimes the priests and they would keep their faith going. And there was a a phrase that did the rounds in Northamptonshire at the time. It was, the disbelieving husband shall be saved by the believing wife. Um, I should, I always have had to be careful when I talk about this subject though, because there's no, there's no general experience. There's no one experience. There's an incredibly broad spectrum. Some Catholics, you know, had great chapels in their houses and, and they, they had the mass carried on and they could get away with quite a lot. Certainly people knew Elizabeth as well. People like William Byrd in her chapel royal. He was fined as a recusant, but he was pretty much, you know, the blind eye was shown to him. Um, On the other hand, you have this. You have Margaret Clitheroe, who was pressed to death on the 25th of March, 1586. Not even for harboring a priest, for refusing to plead to the charge of harboring a priest. She was stripped to a linen shift. She was made to lie down. A door was placed on top of her, and seven or eight hundred weight was placed on top of the door until her ribs crushed and she died. So we can't generalize. But there certainly was, I found evidence, and it's, it's it, it quite sort of not just in Northamptonshire, throughout, there was a sort of squeamishness among some officials about raiding Catholic homes. And, you know, they're not just sort of Elizabeth's goons from London. They're local people, they're local officials, they're neighbors, they're friends their countrymen, their relatives. And you can understand why they would have problems attacking a house like this. You know, they would walk in and here are the ladies sewing. What could be more innocent? And actually, they're probably sewing vestments and altar cloths and chalice veils. Uh, but you know, it was, it actually, that picture always reminds me of a speakeasy. You know, you kind of think that once the men are gone, the priests will come out. Um, but you can understand why the officials might sort of feel squeamish about ransacking a house like that and there was one official who said that there was a disgrace that is wont to occupy this kind of service and of course the women took full advantage of it so there's this wonderful story of, of Eleanor Brooksby's adopted daughter Frances Burroughs who lived with them and 
She was 11 years old at the time when the men came in and they barged in and she stood up and she said, oh, put up your swords, put up your swords. My mother will die. She cannot bear to see a naked blade. And so the men are sort of like, oh, okay, then I don't know what to do quite. And, and they let her go off and get restorative cordials for her swooning mother. And of course, while she's doing that, she's making sure that everything is hidden. You know, all the vestments, all the crucifixes, all the massing equipment, and of course, the priests as well. And she trots back in and, and, and they were saved. And there was another a very famous raid that happened in October 1591, almost certainly here at Baddersley Clinton. Along here is a, a sewer hide. It runs along the whole wing. And there had just been a Jesuit reunion. This is Annella's house that they rented at the time, we think, almost certainly. Um, and these are very, very risky things. All the Jesuits in the country... And there weren't that many. There were sort of a handful at any one time. There were priests from other holy orders, but the Jesuits, not so many. But there were about seven at this time, and they'd had their reunion. And at these reunions, they would pray together. They would hear each other's confessions. They would renew their vows, but they would also discuss strategy. And it went on for about three days, so they would stay over. So it was. It was very, very risky, and they heard the banging at the door, and they knew that a raid was about to happen. It was first thing in the morning. So the priests all went into the sewer hide and they gathered up the vestments and all the massing equipment. And the ladies even turned over the mattresses of all the beds that the priests had been sleeping in so that they wouldn't feel warm to the touch. And finally, you know, bang, 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 all all this time's going on. and, And finally, Anne opened the door to them. And Anne wasn't actually the mistress of the house. That was her sister, Eleanor, her older sister. But Eleanor found these raids absolutely terrifying. So she would hide in a priestel herself, and Anne would impersonate her and uh, be the mistress of the house. So she opened the door, and, and again, you, you'd imagine they were probably thinking that she would be, I'm terribly sorry, terribly sorry. But not a bit of it. She subjected them to this barrage of damaged outrage, and she said, how dare you come to my house so early when my children and my servants aren't even out of bed yet? And it, this is the height of bad manners. How could you do this? Um, And then for the next four hours, when they searched the house, she's there yapping at their heels the whole time. And she said later that they were pulling out all the linen. And amongst the linen, there were dalmatics and all sorts of vestments. And they didn't realize because they were so busy pulling it apart. And they came across a silver pyx that contained the sacrament. And they didn't know what that was. And she said she had no respect for them. She said they behaved like a party of boys playing blind man's buff who in their wild rage to find the priests have no idea that they're hiding right beneath them and eventually she you know she gave the searchers breakfast and she gave them a bribe and off they finally went and she gave the all clear and the priest came out and henry garnet said afterwards he, he wrote to his boss in rome and he said though she has all a maiden's modesty and even shyness yet in god's cause And in the protection of his servants, Virgo becomes Virago. That's that's how you sort of privilege a woman with praise in the 16th century. She has to be sort of warrior-like. Of course, not all raids were unsuccessful. Priests were caught. Um, We have a very, very graphic, vivid account, an autobiography written by the Jesuit priest John Gerard, And he was pulled from a priesthood. He was taken to the Tower of London. He was brutally tortured. He he talks about being led 
through this dark alleyway in a procession with the guards ahead of him with candles. And they went down, down, down. And then they opened up into this huge, huge cavernous room. And in there, he said, was every single instrument of human torture you could ever imagine. And they said to him he would try them all. And they hung him up with um, the manacles, sort of handcuffs, basically. And they would hang him up and he would pass out and then they would hold him up. And when he came to, they would drop him again. So this went on for a couple of days. Um, but it's very graphic. It's very grisly. But, but there is a happy story for Gerard, I'm pleased to say. Um, he escaped from the Tower of London. Here is the tower. He was actually in the Salt Tower, but he managed to bribe his warder to join his friend John Arden there at the top of the Cradle Tower. And he escaped from the tower with the help of an orange. How? Well, he peeled the orange. He used the pith. He cut up the pith into little crosses, and he weaved them together into rosaries. And he bribed his warder into passing these on to his friends on the outside. And it seemed harmless. You know, it's his way of saying, I'm keeping the faith, I'm all right, don't worry about me. But what the warder didn't realize is that the paper that these crosses were wrapped in, it looked blank, it was white. It contained hidden messages because orange juice is a very good invisible ink. And if you scratch on it with, say, a toothpick or something, it'll disappear when it dries. And then you can bring out the lettering with heat, with a candle or a coal, or I did it with an iron because I did, I did it with my two-year-old and my five-year-old one weekend, and we used an iron. And I have to say, historical research and childcare never come together like that. But, but that one blissful weekend, it, it worked. So the message got out. The message got out to John Gerald's friends. And before you knew it, they were, let's pretend that's them. They were in a boat and they were riding up the Thames, rowing up the Thames and they had in their boat a weighted rope. And they tied one end to the wharf and they threw the other end up to Gerard at the top of the cradle tower and he attached it to his end. And he literally worked his way across the rope and onto freedom. But it was touch and go. I mean, remember, just six months earlier, he'd been tortured at his, you know, by his wrists. And halfway across, he was just dangling there. And he, he said he was sure he was going to drop into the moat. But he got the strength, he said. He got the strength from God. And, and, and off he went. And stories like that, you know, obviously, it's, it's, it's great fun to research stories like that. And it's very swashbuckling. And you root for him. You know, you, you, you want him to escape. So I think... I better stand up for Bloody Bess a little bit here because it wasn't that easy. You know, there are very, very few heroes and villains in this tale. Was Elizabeth I bloody? Well, a lot of blood was spilt in her reign, undeniably. But such were the times, I'm sorry to say. I mean, she was no more bloody, I don't think, than than Philip II or Ivan the Terrible or Akbar. Was she personally bloody? No, I don't, I don't think so. I think she was essentially a moderate, not immoderate, a moderate. Um, there were two instances where you could argue against that probably. One was when the Babington plotters were executed. She said to Burley she wanted them to be executed with more terror, more cruelty, more pain than the traditional sentence of hanging, drawing, and quartering. And uh, they had to reassure her that if it was done properly, 
In other words, if they were cut down while they were still alive so that they would experience the full horror and pain of seeing their entrails being pulled out of their bodies, then it would be, it would be bad enough. <laughs> and so she sort of eventually said, okay then. Um, and then there was one other time, she, this is an indictment on her, I think. She hired Richard Topcliffe personally accountable to her, the Queen's servant, and he did relish his role. You know, as I said, most of them didn't, I don't think, but he loved being a priest hunter. And not only that, he tortured them. He had a torture chamber in his house, allegedly. And, you know, you read these reports where he's clearly loving it. He's loving it. And he was also accused of raping a Catholic girl in prison. And uh, she got pregnant and he promised her that he would look after her if she gave up the location of the priest who was hiding in her family home, which she did do. So he was not a pleasant man. And uh, the Catholics called him the most sordid man in England. And you have to always be careful about Catholic propaganda because, you know, they really demonise these guys. But in Topless' case, you, you didn't even have to exaggerate. So those, those are two instances where, you know, Elizabeth maybe could have done better. But on the other hand, she did act as a curb on the more zealous ministers and the Puritans in Parliament. She didn't want to force consciences if she could help it. She did expect obedience. But she vetoed, for example, a bill that would have made the Catholics take Protestant communion. So they had to go to church, but they didn't have to take Protestant communion. So, you know, she's in an impossible position. That bull of excommunication... And then the laws that followed. And religion and politics are so close, you can't separate them. It's, it's an almost impossible bind. And of course, she was at war. She was at war with France, with Philip II of Spain, no less. And you don't pose with your hand on a helmet like that unless you mean business. When he annexed Portugal in 1580, he had a medal struck celebrating it. And it had the words, known sufficient orbis on it. The world is not enough. And the other thing to bear in mind is that all those plots against Elizabeth, and in the 1580s, it was almost a continuum of plots. There were a hell of a lot. They weren't all made up. Most of them were real. Most of them were genuine. And, you know, all it took was one flash of the blade, one bullet, and she would have been wiped out. And with her, Protestant England would have been wiped out. And it's perfectly possible. Regent Moray in Scotland was assassinated in 1570. You have William of Orange, the Protestant Dutch figurehead. He was assassinated in 1584. You have Henry III of France in 1589, stabbed to death. Henry IV of France, 1610, on it goes. So it's very much the age of assassination. So again, you can understand why she was worried. There is less danger in fearing too much than too little. Wolsey said to Burley as early as 1568, and you can, you can understand that sentiment. In 1585, William Allen, the guy who founded the main seminary in Flanders, he wrote to the Pope, he petitioned the Pope for a holy war. And he said to the Pope, only fear is making the Catholics obey Elizabeth I. And that fear will be removed when they see the force from without. And he went on to say that the priests in England, the ones who came over and they always said they were there for souls, they were there to you know, administer the sacraments. They, said Alan, they would be the ones who would direct the consciences of the Catholics when the time comes. An evasion. 
And it came. It came in 1588. And, you know, the great child of Malmesbury, Thomas Hobbes, was born in that year, in April 1588. And he always said that his, his birth was premature. And it was because his mother was so terrified. He said that, or allegedly he said, that his mother gave birth to twins, himself and fear. And it was a very, very worrying time, as you can imagine. And the Catholics, people like Sir Thomas Tresham, Lord Vaux, they were placed in custody. Long before the Armada got anywhere near the Channel, they were put in custody. And Tresham complained. He complained bitterly. He said, please, 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 can I show my true English heart? You know, I'm a good guy. Let me prove it. Let me fight in the vanguard, unarmed if necessary. And Tresham, he's such an interesting case because he's often put up there as the example of a good Englishman and a good Catholic. You know, people say you can be both. And when you read his petitions to the Queen, they're very convincing. He sort of says, suffer us not to be the only outcasts and refuse of the world. Let it not be treason for the dying man to receive the last sacraments. It's very powerful. And he's, not, he's making no bones about his faith. He's a very stand-up kind of guy. There he is again. And he built these. This is the Triangular Lodge in, in Rushton. And 40 miles down the road is, in, in Northamptonshire is Livedon Newbuild. One in the shape of a triangle, his monument to the Trinity. One in the shape of a Greek cross, his tribute to the Passion. So it looks like he's not hiding anything. But those papers of his that I, I began the talk with, they tell a slightly different story. They tell us that he was communicating with the Queen's enemies abroad. We know that he was involved in at least one plot against Elizabeth, the 1582 Lennox plot, which was to be an invasion of England via Scotland, Mary Queen of Scots replacing Elizabeth, France and Spain involved, and the Rome. Um, he was involved in that. He was the link man with the Spanish ambassador. And also in those papers of his, there's one that's dated to around 1603, probably just after Elizabeth died. And the mask slips, and he says that English Catholics had a settled hatred for Anne Boleyn. And they always thought Elizabeth was illegitimate. And they always thought that God's chief prisoner, Mary Queen of Scots, had the better claim to the throne. So again, you know, it's hard. It's hard to figure out these loyalties. And in the end, we will never know what his true loyalty was because he was in custody and the Armada never, never made it. You know, as we know, God blew and it was scattered. And the triumph of the Armada was not just Elizabeth beating Philip or Protestantism defeating Catholicism. It was painted as the triumph of Christ over Antichrist. Truth over falsehood. Freedom over tyranny. And Elizabeth I was hailed as the Virgin Queen, who brought up, wrote the dramatist Thomas Decker, a nation that was almost begotten and born under her, that never shouted any other Ave than for her name. It's spin. There were thousands of Catholics still saying their Ave Marias, still holding, keeping them safe, their rosaries. But they didn't fit into this predestined Protestant version of English history. And people like Tresham, they described their life as moth-eaten. He said he was drenched in a sea of shameless slanders. He died a disappointed man two years after Elizabeth I. He died on the 11th of September, 1605. And the following month, his wife's nephew, Robert Catesby, tried to recruit his son, Francis Tresham, 
into the gunpowder plot. Francis Tresham was arrested on the 12th of November 1605 and he died in the Tower of London before he could face trial. And about two weeks later, on or around the 28th of November 1605, all the family papers were gathered together, they were bundled up, they were wrapped up in a sheet and they were bricked in to the walls of Rushton Hall. And they lay there undisturbed for over two centuries until in 1828, the builders came in. Thank you. That was Jessie Childs speaking at our 2014 History Weekend in Malmesbury. Tickets are now on sale for our 2015 events, which include weekends at both Malmesbury and York, and feature speakers such as Melvin Bragg, Michael Wood, Susanna Lipscomb and Yanina Ramirez. You can find out more and book tickets at historyweekend.com. And the first few talks have begun to sell out already, so please do ensure you get your tickets soon to avoid disappointment. And now we have a short advertisement break. Best-selling author Simon Scarrow's new novel, Hearts of Stone, is a tour de force. Described by the Sunday Times as a gripping, moving narrative of friendships broken by war and betrayal, it brings the Greek resistance in World War II to vivid life. Set on the idyllic island of Lefkas, it follows three childhood friends who find themselves on opposite sides of the conflict. Their friendship formed in peacetime will turn into a desperate battle between enemies, sworn to sacrifice everything for the countries that they love. With powerful battle scenes, real drama and poignant moments, Hearts of Stone is a brilliantly original read and cements Simon Scarrow's position as one of the finest fiction authors at work today. Hearts of Stone by Simon Scarrow is out now in hardback and ebook. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. 
Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Now it's time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarnan. Britain has pledged to save historic and artistic artefacts under threat in conflict-torn countries by signing up to a convention established after the Second World War. Amid outrage at the destruction by ISIS militants of ancient sites in Iraq and Syria, the Culture Secretary, John Whittingdale, is to introduce legislation that will finally sign up the UK to the 1954 Hague Convention, The Guardian reports. The convention was set up after the Second World War to protect historical and archaeological sites, works of art, manuscripts and books. More than 100 countries have ratified the convention, but over the years the UK government has been reluctant to follow suit. The Culture Secretary also announced that ministers would set up a, quote, cultural protection fund to help preserve cultural heritage in potential or existing conflict zones, and help with the recovery of artefacts. In other news, 8 million mummified animals, most of them dogs, have been discovered in an ancient tomb south of Cairo. The animals, which have been underground for more than 2,000 years, were found within the catacombs of a temple dedicated to the god Anubis in a burial ground called Saqqara. The discovery was made by researchers from Cardiff University. According to Live Science, the centre passageway of the tomb is around 568 foot long and 459 foot wide. Many of the mummified canines have disintegrated or been removed by grave robbers and industrialists who likely used the mummies for fertiliser. Meanwhile, the body of a five-month-old foetus from 336 years ago has been found by Swedish researchers in the coffin of a bishop. According to The Telegraph, researchers ran Bishop Pedro Winstrup's coffin through a CT scanner and discovered the body of a baby beneath the mattress of herbs on which his feet were laid. The researchers from Lund University were hoping to build a, quote, medical biography of the theologist and physics professor. Per Carsten, director of the Historical Museum at Lund University, believes the foetus was born prematurely and then hidden in the coffin. This was perhaps done by a member of Winstrup's staff in the hope that the man of God would be able to intercede for the baby in the afterlife. Stillborn babies, or those who died before they could be baptised, were not at the time permitted a Christian burial. Carsten intends to send tissue samples from both bodies for DNA analysis, which he thinks will confirm his theory that the child is not related to the bishop. Thanks for that, Emma. Now, regular listeners or readers will know that we're running an ongoing series called Our First World War. 
that charts the history of the war through the voices of those who were there. We've now come to June 1915, and here, in an interview with the Imperial War Museum, is 2nd Lieutenant George Horridge talking about his experiences in the ongoing battle at Gallipoli. Then about ten past twelve, after about ten minutes, uh, of course, uh, everybody had started firing by this time. The Turks' artillery were firing, the machine guns were firing, the riflemen were firing, everybody were firing. Our people were firing as well. I looked over the top and saw one of these Manchester fellows, evidently wounded, lying on his tummy about 30 yards in front of the trench, holding up his hand. Well, uh, although I rather hesitate to tell this tale, because it may sound as though I'm saying something in favour of myself, which I really wasn't, but to tell the true story, what came into my mind was this. You wondered before ever you got into action, I suppose nearly every soldier must have wondered, what he would feel like, what would happen when he actually got there with the metal flying about all over the place. And I thought about it too. I wondered what would happen when the time came to go over the top or something like that. And as I saw this chap, it struck me that this was the moment I'd been waiting for. What... uh, was I going to do? Here was the moment. You wondered what you would do. And if you didn't, if you don't go now and do something, you'll remember all your life that you didn't, you failed at that moment. Nobody else will know you failed, but you will know you failed. And so, in a way, I was forced by those feelings to go and try and get this chap in. I went to a another um, of my platoon called Parks, who was uh, on sentry duty in the trench. I said, look, Park, let's go out and see if we can get this chap in. So Parks jumped out of the trench. I followed him. I hadn't gone more than about six yards before I felt that I'd been hit by a sledgehammer in the, ri- in the ribs, and I knew then that I'd been hit. Well, as I said, this... Sound may sound rather blowing one's own trumpet, but uh, as soon as I was hit, I say that all I did was bringing the Manchester man in disappeared. All I was concerned about was getting back into the trench. So I turned around, ran and jumped into the trench. It was about seven feet deep. Sprained my ankle, which lasted longer than the wound had gone. And uh, there I was, wounded, Parks brought the, the Manchester chap in, but I'm sorry to say he died that, during that afternoon. That was George Horridge. You can continue to follow our First World War each month in BBC History magazine. And speaking of the magazine, our July issue is currently on sale. Inside this month's edition, there are articles on the Black Death, Genghis Khan the Battle of Britain, and the Reformation, among other things. You can get hold of our July issue now in all good news agents and digitally. And for this issue, we're trying out a new service whereby you can enjoy audio versions of the articles. These will be available to listen to on the iPad and iPhone versions, and you can also download the articles for free 
from the website. Visit historyextra.com forward slash July audio for that. And to whet your appetite, here is the audio version of our monthly anniversary section. Written by Dominic Sandbrook and read by Sally Bailey. Anniversaries. Dominic Sandbrook highlights events that took place in July in history. 19th of July, 1848. The world's first women's rights convention demands equality. Amid jeers and ridicule, the international feminist movement is born in New York. The tiny village of Seneca Falls, New York, has an extraordinary claim to fame. It was here that the world's first convention on women's rights opened on the 19th of July, 1848, a two-day meeting that became one of the foundational events of the international feminist movement. It traced its origin to the American anti-slavery movement, which had inspired countless women to speak, write and protest for the first time. Now they had a convention of their own. The event got underway amid faintly comic scenes. The organisers had forgotten to open the doors of the Methodist Wesleyan Chapel, so delegates found themselves locked outside. The opening session was supposed to be for women only, but many mothers brought young children and several dozen men also turned up. These were allowed in, but asked to remain silent. Delegates discussed issues such as women's property rights and winning the vote. At the heart of their deliberations was a declaration of sentiments. The history of mankind, it declared, is a history of repeated injuries and usurpation on the part of man toward woman, having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over her. Alas, to many local newspapers, the convention was a joke. If our ladies will insist on voting and legislating, where, gentlemen, will be our dinners and our elbows, demanded the Oneida Whig. But reformer Horace Greeley saw the justice of the cause. Their call for political equality, he wrote, was but the assertion of a natural right, and such must be conceded. 15th of July, 1099. Jerusalem falls to the Crusaders. The holy city runs with blood as tens of thousands are slaughtered. Launched in November 1095, the First Crusade reached its climax at the walls of Jerusalem nearly four years later. It was the height of summer, and outside the walls of the holy city, some 12,000 crusaders were preparing for the final assault. On the night of the 14th of July, the crusaders attacked from two siege towers. At the city's northeastern gate, two knights from Tournai led the charge, soon followed by scores more. And as the resistance crumbled, the blood began to flow. Even by crusade standards, the sack of Jerusalem was a moment of immense savagery. Many of the city's Muslim and Jewish citizens fled towards the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock, hoping for sanctuary from the Crusaders' bloodlust. But they were to be horribly disappointed. The Crusaders, reported one chronicler, were killing and slaying even to the Temple of Solomon, where the slaughter was so great that our men waded in blood up to their ankles. The Crusader, Fulcher of Chartres, thought the death toll ran into the tens of thousands. If you had been there, he wrote, you would have seen our feet covered to our ankles with the blood of the slain. None of them were left alive, neither women nor children were spared. For days afterwards, Jerusalem reeked of death. Eventually, the crusaders' leaders ordered the survivors to dump the corpses outside the walls. 
So the living Saracens dragged the dead before the exits of the gates and arranged them in heaps, as if they were houses, a chronicle explained. No one ever saw or heard of such slaughter of pagan people, for funeral pyres were formed from them like pyramids, and no one knows their number except God alone. 5th of July, 328. On the border between modern-day Romania and Bulgaria, Constantine the Great watches the formal opening of one of the ancient world's longest river bridges, reaching almost 8,000 feet across the Danube. 30th of July, 1975. Having arranged to meet his mafia contacts in a car park in a Detroit suburb, the controversial American Union leader Jimmy Hoffa disappears and is never seen again. 24th of July, 1911. In the jungles of Peru, the American explorer and amateur archaeologist Hiram Bingham comes across the site of Machu Picchu, then virtually unknown in the outside world. 2nd of July, 1644. Cromwell crushes the royalists at Marston Moor. Catastrophic defeat atomizes Charles I's influence in the north. Prince Rupert's royalist troops were just settling down for supper when the Battle of Marston Moor broke out. It was the summer of 1644, and on the moorland just outside York, Rupert's army faced its Scottish and parliamentarian adversaries. Rain was coming, there was a hint of thunder. Hearing the parliamentarians singing psalms, Rupert thought his opponents would wait until morning, but moments later the enemy cavalry charged. Like all battles, Marston Moor was an exercise in bloody chaos. While the parliamentarian right and centre struggled to make headway, the cavalry on their left wing, under Lieutenant General Oliver Cromwell, carried all before them, twice charging and driving their enemies from the field. Even as darkness was falling, the moor was littered with corpses, while many of the royalist troops, ignoring their officers' orders, fell back in confusion. It was a royalist catastrophe. Almost at a stroke, they had lost control of the North. From this point, Charles I was merely postponing the inevitable. But for one man in particular, Marston Moore was a sign of divine approval. Truly, England and the Church of God hath had a great favour from the Lord in this great victory given unto us, such as the like never was since this war began, wrote Oliver Cromwell afterwards. The left wing, which I commanded, being our own horse, saving a few Scots in our rear, beat all the prince's horse. God made them a stubble to our swords. 17th of July, 1918. Russia's royals are killed in cold blood. A cellar in Yekaterinburg becomes the scene of a horrific murder. The atmosphere around us is electric. Alexandra, the former Empress of Russia, wrote to a friend in one of her last letters before her death. We fear that a storm is coming, but we know that God is merciful. If Alexandra had known what was really coming, even she might have questioned the Almighty's intentions for her family. In the city of Yekaterinburg, on the edge of the Urals, July 1918 was punishingly hot. In a former merchant's house, commandeered by the local Soviet, Russia's royal family awaited their fate. Since the fall of the monarchy more than a year earlier, Nicholas II, his wife Alexandra, and their five children, Olga, Tatiana, Maria, Anastasia and Alexei, had been stripped of their privileges, placed under heavy guard and shipped east. But with Russia now torn apart by civil war and Czechoslovakian forces approaching the city, the atmosphere was heavy with tension.
Just after midnight on the 17th, the Bolshevik commander Yakov Yurovsky ordered the royal family out of their beds and into a dingy cellar, supposedly to wait for their transport. Then, Yurovsky began reading out a hastily scribbled death sentence. Nikolai Alexandrovich, in view of the fact that your relatives are continuing their attack on Soviet Russia, the Ural Executive Committee has decided to execute you. What? What? said the former emperor, and at that the guards began shooting. Nicholas fell at once. But the scene that followed was complete chaos, a nightmare of smoke and bullets. The couple's teenage daughters were not killed straight away, so Yurovsky and his men finished them off with bayonets. Some of the children had diamonds sewn into their clothes, which made the task of killing them even messier. It was a horrific business. Comment, Helen Rappaport. The murder of the Russian imperial family at a time when the rest of Europe was enduring the fourth year of an exhausting war attracted little international notice at the time. By 1918, the former Tsar had become an irrelevance. At best, he had been a good and kind family man. At worst, he was the unremarkable end to a long line of Tsars with blood on their hands. The Russian people were told nothing beyond a brief announcement of Nicholas's death, and they did not mourn him. But conflicting stories about whether or not the Tsaritsa and her children had also been killed proliferated almost immediately. It suited the Bolsheviks not to enlighten anyone. A long period of disinformation and deliberate obfuscation of the truth diffused any accusations about Lenin's complicity. It also played directly into the hands of a host of false claimants, notably Anna Anderson, who exploited incredulous supporters with tall tales of a miraculous escape from the bloodbath. It is only since the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 that the true significance of the deaths at Yekaterinburg has unravelled, with the growing veneration of the imperial family inextricably linked to the resurgence of Russian orthodoxy. Elevated as saints in the orthodox calendar, the Romanovs today represent for the patriotic Russian faithful a renewal of the old Russian values of orthodoxy and nationality, and crystallise a nostalgia for all that was lost under communism. About the writers. Dominic Sandbrook is a historian and presenter. His next TV series, Let Us Entertain You, is due to air on BBC Two. Helen Rappaport is the author of Yekaterinburg, published by Hutchinson, 2008, and Four Sisters, published by Pan Macmillan in 2014. Her next book, Caught in the Revolution, Petrograd 1917, will be released in 2017. That was July's Anniversaries, written by Dominic Sambrook and read by Sally Bailey. You can enjoy more audio content from this edition with our iPad and iPhone editions, or download it for free from historyextra.com forward slash July Audio. Well, that's pretty much it for this week, but please do join us next time when we'll be talking about India in the Second World War, among other things. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook? where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, 
don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.